Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week I'm continuing our mini-series, 100 Years of Fascism, covering this week the 1970s. Now, overall, the 1970s were a period of transition in fascist movements throughout the United States and Europe, which will be the primary focus this week. Uh, specifically, this was a time when some of the last fascist or fascist-inflected governments in Europe ended, namely Spain and Portugal, and it also saw the foundation of several important fascist movements in the rest of Europe and also the United States. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Starting with the end of some of the last fascist-involved governments in the world, and by fascist-involved I mean like with the participation of literal fascists whose legacies come from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, like the origins of fascism as such, we saw in the 1970s the end of fascism as such and dictatorships in the Iberian Peninsula, that is, uh, Portugal and Spain. In Portugal, the 1970s saw the end of the Estado Novo, the government of Salazar, who was a dictator sort of philosopher king type in that country for uh, the actually quite a large part of the 20th century. Uh, Salazar himself was not a fascist and his government did not particularly involve fascism as such in the same way as Spain, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but the Carnation Revolution, which ended the dictatorship in Portugal, occurred in 1974. Uh, it was run by Portuguese troops, like, you know, Portuguese military people uh, who wanted an end to the dictatorship based upon the behavior that they were required to engage in in the uh, former colonies of Portugal, namely in southwest and southeastern Africa, that is Angola and Mozambique, as well as what is now East Timor and several other smaller islands and possessions which uh, Portugal used to hold until the 1970s. So in 1974, there was this revolution that changed over the government to be beginning to be a uh, more democratically oriented one. And this was followed by a period of moderation and the return to democracy, although there were a few competing coup attempts uh, in that country. Afterwards, however, Portugal became a pretty stable liberal democracy, uh, although there were fascist movements uh, that emerged in the aftermath of the Carnation Revolution, namely the Ordem Nova, uh, the New Order, which was a fascist movement of, you know, former military personnel who were opposed to the changeover away from the dictatorship. Spain similarly saw a transition in the 1970s. Um, as Franco aged, you know, he had been the dictator for quite some time, uh, the government was moderating, specifically in an economic way, although uh, civil liberties remained uh, very tightly controlled. So Spain had joined NATO, it had been engaging more economically with the rest of the European Union, and leading up to Franco's death, there was a promise that when Franco died, the country would become a constitutional monarchy again, as it was prior to the establishment of the Spanish Republic that uh, Franco's civil war ended. So when Franco died, Spain became a constitutional monarchy again under the leadership of Juan Carlos, uh, the person who had been essentially waiting in, uh, like, lying in wait uh, for Franco to die so that he could be the successor. Franco had always said that he was sort of being like in a, in a regent type position, getting the country ready and, uh, you know, making sure that the left was weak enough that when Spain became a republic again, 
or rather, you know, when it became a constitutional monarchy again, that the left would not be in charge. Spain created a new constitution in 1978 and was initially led by a coalition of sort of like liberal centrist type figures, uh, which ultimately led to the establishment of full normative democracy, you know, at least to the extent that any uh, liberal capitalist society is a functional democracy in the 1980s. Much like Portugal, Spain also saw a series of smaller fascist groups emerge in the wake of the collapse of the Franco government, which, remember, again, while not necessarily fascist itself, was technically run by the remains of the fascist movement in Spain, the Falange. In Spain, there were also smaller fascist groups that sprung up in the wake of the end of the Franco dictatorship. For example, Fuerza Nueva, New Force, uh, which is a fascist organization uh, which eventually transitioned to essentially being a publishing house. This is much like the trajectory of another fascist organization that came about in the United States in the 1970s. Uh, this organization is the National Alliance. It was formed from the ashes of the George Wallace presidential campaign in 1968, George Wallace being the famously conservative segregationist candidate who vowed to maintain segregation in the United States forever. Uh, so out of the wake of the failure of the George Wallace campaign, the National Alliance was formed. The National Alliance, much like these other fascist organizations in Spain and Portugal, was a like self-aware fascist organization, although because it was the United States, the legacy that they were looking to was not the legacy of fascist movements in Spain or Portugal or even Italy, but Germany. This is an earnestly neo-Nazi organization, one of the largest and most powerful in the United States uh, until the later 20th century. The National Alliance was founded by the author of The Turner Diaries, uh, which is a series of white supremacist survivor-type speculative fiction novels. Uh, these are extremely popular on the right and are still a little bit to this day, although, again, it was more sort of in this 70s, 80s, 90s period of extreme right-wing nationalism and neo-Nazi organizing. The Turner Diaries are going to be coming up over and over again as I talk about the 80s and 90s, especially as we get into the terrorist campaigns that were waged against, um, for example, abortion rights uh, in the United States. The National Alliance is particularly interesting to me because it is actually one of the origins of my fascination with and disgust for the right wing. Because when I was a kid, I uh, accidentally saw a uh, National Alliance pamphlet on the coffee table of my uncle. Uh, and that sparked a terrifying realization that uh, these people are not just in history books but are, in fact, in the real world, and that I might, in fact, know some of them. So uh, that's, a, that's a little little personal detail there. Finally, the last group that I want to highlight, which started in the 1970s, which would continue to uh, be important and influential on the right wing throughout the remainder of the 20th century and up until today, is the National Front, the political party that Marianne Le Pen belongs to, the failed French presidential candidate from the recent election although her party has since been renamed National Rally. This is because they are trying to distance themselves from the just like kind of openly fascistic past of the National Front. The party was founded in 1972 in France and was sort of modeled on the Italian social movement, which was a self-aware post-fascist political party and political movement in Italy. 
so it was modeled off of this like fascistic legacy group in Italy, and it was trying to be the same thing in France. Its attempt, its goal, was to unify right-wing groups in France under one banner. And it was ultimately pretty successful. Although, of course, like most extremist organizations, it also faced a series of rivalries and internal struggles, which would eventually result in the actual fascists, you know, like, like the earnest neo-Nazi types, like the, the Roman salute type people, leaving the group in the late 70s. This uh, also involved their attempting to work with other European right-wing groups uh, as the European Union was becoming more and more politically linked together. Uh, you know, like as as there were emerging pan-European political formations, like the, the, the nascent things that would eventually become the European Union, right-wing groups were there on the ground trying to capitalize off of this and trying to use them as means to organize people uh, and also using them as electoral struggles that they might be more likely to win than actual, you know, national domestic uh, political elections, which carry a lot more weight and are a lot harder to field possible candidates for. So, like I said, the National Front had a lot of ideological splintering and uh, problems like internal divisions in the late 70s, which resulted in some of the harder line fascists leaving the group, uh, which left it as a sort of national, conservative, anti-Semitic, post-fascist organization, which is what it was under the leadership of Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, the father of Marianne Le Pen, who eventually came to dominate the party in the 1980s, uh, but that's a story for next week. Finally, going to close out this week talking about one of the more disturbing uh, particular events that occurred in the 1970s in the United States regarding fascism. This is the Greensboro Massacre of 1979. The Greensboro Massacre involved a Maoist party, a Maoist political organization, uh, which had its origins in New York, but which was organizing workers at various mills in North Carolina in the Greensboro area. They had little success organizing white workers and so transitioned to trying to organize primarily black workers in these factories. And they were targeted by white supremacist organizations in North Carolina as such. Specifically, they were targeted by the KKK and also by the American Nazi Party, which I spoke of previously, which at this time was the largest neo-fascist sort of like neo-Nazi organization in the United States. So the, these Maoist labor organizers were being targeted by the KKK, and they knew it. And so the Maoists had a, a response to this. You know, they said that we're going to hold a big public rally in Greensboro, North Carolina, to talk about how the KKK cannot be a legitimate part of our political world and how they need to be responded to with the violence that they demand from the world, that, that they need to be excluded from political life. So the Maoists had this rally against the KKK, uh, the press showed up, and uh, the Klan did take the bait uh, in this rally. The Klan showed up, uh, bringing 40 people, 40 Klansmen, and members of the American Nazi Party. They showed up uh, in trucks and cars and pulled out weapons, uh, shotguns, rifles, pistols, bats, and they fired on the protesters while the reporters were there. And... As a result, they killed five people, uh, all but one of which was a member of this Maoist organization or a member of the labor organization that they were trying to organize. One was there to support his wife. This is the, the person who is not affiliated with these organizations. Uh, the Klansmen and American Nazis also permanently injured 
uh, about half a dozen other people, uh, as well as wounding several others. The extremely public nature of this attack meant that uh, the Klan actually did face serious legal consequences from this. And this is something that um, comes from the legacy of the FBI continuing to investigate extreme right-wing organizations after the civil rights movement, something that they sort of paused for a while, but have since been picking up again uh, in the wake of the attempted coup on January 6th. Uh, Because of these investigations, there were a lot of major criminal charges against these Klansmen and neo-Nazis, charges based both on their, like, shooting people, like their extreme violence, um, but also charges of conspiracy, conspiracy to disrupt civil rights protests, conspiracy to deprive people of their civil rights. Because of these investigations and subsequent uh, declassification of documents related to the massacre, we also now know that local police, at least, knew about the Klan's plan to attack these people. At the very least, we know that there were several informants that both the FBI and local police had in these right-wing organizations, and that these informants knew about this plan and didn't tell anybody about it, uh, which means that they were collaborating with an attack on a majority black leftist organization in the United States in 1979. This is one of the only events, uh, the Greensboro Massacre in the United States, that has gotten a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, something that the uh, organizers of this committee modeled after the Apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which was a you know, a, a national commission whose goal was to determine the facts and nature of extreme right-wing behavior in those countries. And speaking of events that deserved a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the 1970s are also a time when a majority of South American countries were under the thumb of military dictatorships. Uh, These dictatorships were not fascist themselves. You know, they weren't uh, run by a political party that, you know, had mass mobilization as its goal. However, they did engage in extreme right-wing partisan violence. The 1970s were the time of Pinochet's coup against Salvador Allende in 1973. It was also the time of the coup against Isabella Perón in Argentina in 1976. And like I said, while these organizations and movements, while these governments were not explicitly fascist in the same way as, say, uh, Franco Spain at least sort of purported to be, Uh, they were deeply involved in partisan violence, and specifically right-wing partisan violence. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. If you really liked it, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also my Gmail, 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. You can also reach me at Hist of the Right on Twitter or at Fascism15 on Twitter. Again, 15 is spelled out. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week, continuing with the history of fascism in the 1980s.